one. All right, welcome to the Ocean Water Podcast. I have with me today my friend Steve Miska. Steve is uh, recently retired from the military after 25 years of service. Thank you, brother. His last assignment uh, was for uh, three years as the Army Chair on the military faculty at the Marine Corps War College at the Marine Corps University in Quantico. Before that, you served at the White House as the Director for Iraq on the National Security Council, focusing on security aspects of the Iraq portfolio. In 2011, you completed a counterterrorism fellowship at the College of International Security Affairs, National Defense University in Washington, D.C., writing a thesis on protecting local allies in conflict zones. And you published several articles. You also commanded the Infantry Battalion in 2008 and 2000, through 2010 in the 172nd Infantry Brigade stationed in Germany and deployed to Babil, Diwanai, and Najaf provinces in Iraq as the task force one and two commander working closely with interagency provincial reconstruction teams. You deployed before that in Baghdad in 2006 through seven during the surge commanding the task force justice and a year into crit from 2004 through five where you served as the task force one through 18 operations officer. You also served in the Airborne Infantry Assignments in the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and the 1st Battalion, 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment in the Republic of Panama. Steve, you also earned a Master's in Business Administration from Cornell University and taught economics as a professor at the United States Military Academy in West Point, where you received a bachelor's degree in 1990. You personally led a team that established an underground railroad for dozens of interpreters from, Bad, from Baghdad to Amman, Jordan, to the United States in 2007, during the height of sectarian violence in Iraq. And you now serve as the board of advisors for two nonprofits dedicating to protecting former interpreters. Did I get all that right? That's a mouthful, yeah. Well, I wanted to make sure I've done your, um, your professional body of work justice in doing detailed accuracy. So I wanted to make sure I got all that right. And then just on a personal note, um, you're someone that I, that I got introduced to uh, about a year ago through a mutual friend. And um, it's been great getting to know you, man. We both get to call San Clemente home. And yeah. uh, today, man. thank you so much. A lot so, of blessings. So I, I did um, give a full intro to you. And so what are you doing now? And, and what did you get into it? But before we get to that, what's your favorite place to eat in San Clemente? All right, I know this is supposed to be a softball question, but uh, you, you kind of put me on a spot, especially if uh, a lot of San Clementians are listening in, because there's so many good spots to eat, as you know. Yeah. Um, I, I like the cellar. I, don't, I go there for a lot of nonprofit events um, and uh, periodically, but, you know, uh, Zebra House Coffee is a go-to for me on an almost daily basis. Um, as a matter of fact, I wrote a lot of a recent book while uh, drinking cappuccino at Zebra House. Um, you know, the Fisherman's, of course, is iconic. You know, any time a visitor comes to town, you got to take them down to Fisherman's on the pier and show off a little bit of San Clemente. Cafe Ray's, you know, after surfing, I'm sure you go there. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, so there's so many good spots. I, you know, 
I feel bad. I, I'm probably leaving out too many, you know, that, but, uh, it, it's, we're blessed to live here and it's, uh, a good place for me to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you're working on that. Um, <laughs> so speaking of that, what, what are you doing now? What are you doing these days and how did you get into it? So I've, I've got about three major irons in the fire right now. One, uh, I, uh, basically, as you detailed in my bio, I did uh, three combat tours in Iraq and then I did, uh, three combat tours in Washington, DC. And I got into a lot of research and academic pursuits, the think tank community, and policy development, trying to make what we do abroad more effective and do a better job, especially as it relates to our most critical allies in conflict zones. And so I've been in that space ever since I was in Baghdad um, and helped set up the Underground Railroad. That's what my book is about. So I've got that project in the book is all sort of, um, you know, a couple of the uh, things that I've got going on. And then um, the other main thing is First Amendment Voice, a nonprofit that um, I started working on a program with Global Peace Foundation. And um, I was doing something very much in my wheelhouse, which was uh, trying to help them understand why a 15 year old would want to get on a plane and fly to Turkey and then cross the border into Syria and join the ISIS terrorist group. And more importantly, were there things that civic and faith leaders could do to complement government efforts to counter violent extremism? So I was very much in my wheelhouse and I, I had recently retired and had done some mission work with this organization out of my church in Northern Virginia. So they asked me to do this, and um, when I completed it, they said they really liked it, and would I consider working on this First Amendment project with them? And I said, I think you got the wrong guy. I don't know anything about you know domestic politics and all that sort of stuff. And they said, no, no, we just need leadership. So I said, okay, and, and started doing a program. And just last year, um, about a year, little over a year ago now, we, were, we spun it off as its own 501c3 nonprofit. And we've been in the process of putting together the systems to build it from the ground up. So that's uh, pretty much, and then, and then I try to balance, you know, being a dad and a husband and all that good stuff with being a son, you know, with the rest of the family and friends and all that. So few few things going on. Wow. So you you uh, have functioned at a high level of leadership for for virtually your entire life, your your entire career. Um, a lot of functioning at the highest level is you always do a lot of reflecting and you always think about, you're always constantly evaluating lessons that you've learned. Are there any like macro things that really come up high on your radar if like current Steve could talk to young Steve, what would you say? Anything? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, so I put together probably a, a list of about, 15 leadership maximum maxims over my career. And one of them is that experience generally trumps schooling. And while it's not to discount the value of schooling as somebody who's been in, in and out of academia my entire career. Um, but I could never stay in academia because I very much feel passionate about the only way I can really make a difference in the world is by getting out there and getting my hands dirty. 
you know, I can understand theoretically what's going on, but the only way I'm going to fulfill my mission is to be out there making a difference. And so whether that's helping, you know, get interpreters out of a really violent situation where they're being killed because they were working alongside Americans or um, telling a story about it and trying to spread awareness throughout the world or, you know, starting a nonprofit to help Americans understand some of our most fundamental rights, you know, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly and to petition the government for grievance. That's all embodied in the First Amendment. And it's really complex space. So it's, it's interesting. But I learned by doing and I think a lot of people are like that. And so uh, really, I, I would just I know as a as a young leader, it used to frustrate me that people would not give me the benefit of the doubt that I might know something or have had some experience, right? But at the end of the day, you know, when you're 22 and you're commissioned, there's, there's so much more to learn. And um, it always makes me think of that Mark Twain quote, you know, he said, uh, when I was 18, my dad was the stupidest guy on the planet. It was amazing how much he learned by the time I turned 22, right? And so, um, that quote always serves to help put things in perspective for me. And then if I might be frustrated, you know, with my own kids, I can take a step back and say, okay, um, I understand, you know, where they're coming from a little bit. Wow. So good. In fact, I just was sharing with that as part of my message last weekend about how, uh, experience is Trump's education. This is, coming, this is coming from two guys who really like school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. But yeah, experience is better. So, so what are you? What are you curious about right now? What are some of the things that you're just genuinely interested in? Hmm. So, uh, well, I mentioned the, the First Amendment space, and it's complex. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, you know, we've got these these principles that are in the First Amendment. These freedoms that. Um, we see being exercised every day and, and highlighted throughout the media. Um, freedom of assembly, for example, uh, with protests going on over COVID restrictions, you've got freedom of the press and their access or maybe being denied access in certain areas, um, trying to gain transparency over a government or other organization. Um, people feel very, uh, disenfranchised in many cases, they they are stepping back from the public square because they're either fearful of retribution should they voice their opinion, or I think it's almost a worse problem. There's a, a lot of apathy where people don't even feel their voice would matter if they lended it anyway. So why bother? And um, so that space is very dynamic. Technology is shaping all of the ways we express ourselves in those domains. And uh, so it's really interesting. We just, uh, we, we've got a, a program called our Coffee Talks with First yeah. Amendment Voice. And uh, one of the ones that's been really popular is called Media Bias. But I realized that a, a derivative that spins off of that because everybody, as we're talking about media, we're talking about technology and how that's uh, diversifying the media landscape, but also how it's changing the way we consume our information. Um, one of the things that I know probably everybody we know is dealing with is some sort of uh, addiction to technology. 
And um, so we, we just put together a program we're calling Digital Detox. And we will do that. And it's an experiential facilitated program. And uh, don't worry, I, I do recognize the irony of having to do this on a virtual platform um, because we can't do in-person programming, uh, which would be way better. Um, but this is still good. And it's a way to bring people together in a shared time to contemplate how we might be addicted, each of us personally, but also how uh, the things that have been engineered into this technology have been deliberately done that way to maintain our attention and how we might mitigate uh, some of those things that are impacting our ability to find happiness and, and good quality of life. So that is just a fascinating space, right? Because it's technology, it's neuroscience, it's the media, it's how we all uh, start our day, really, right? It, it's, you know, is the first, is this your alarm clock? And is that the first thing you check when you roll out of bed? I mean, for a lot of people, that's the case. Um, so uh, wh what do we do to exercise the more deep thinking, reflective portions of our mind and maybe tone down um, the sensory receptive portions, which are, are an overload in our current contemporary environment? Fascinating. So much of the work that you're interested in and curious in right now is, is coming to surface. I know we had a short conversation the other day about, about all the stuff you're working on is front and center right now. <laughs> I mean, everything right on down the line, the right to assemble, your freedom of speech, the freedom of the press. Yeah. All of these dynamic spaces are, are at the forefront and you have, a, you have a very important conversation to be had in a way. I'm really excited too about the coffee talks. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine um, owns, um, well, two of my friends own um, Sir Coffee here in town. I'll have to put one of those together there. That'd be really, Let's really do fun. it. Yeah, that'd be yeah, really that'd be fun. fun. <laughs> you could even set something up where, you know, they, they invite their patrons, right? Uh -huh. Who can come in in advance, order their coffee and stuff. Cause I know, I don't think anybody can sit down yet, but maybe that, maybe they'll start spacing out. Yeah. But they can all get it in advance and then set up <laughs> on a Zoom platform somewhere and, and join the conversation. That'd be pretty cool. That would be great. We'll, we'll do that. We'll, we'll get something like that lined up. That would be really, really fun. Um, you have, you have traveled the world. You have, <clears throat> you've not, you've traveled the world um, for your career, for your, for what you've done for work. You've also taught a lot of minds of people who came to the universities that you taught at and you had interactions with people from, from all over the world. What, what would kind of be your sort of current understanding of like the, the water situation in, in the world these days? Mm -hmm. um, so <clears throat> yeah, we've uh, actually, I think, you know, so I started life on Long Island. Um, and interestingly, Long Island was formed by glaciers during an ice age, um, two concurrent ones. And so as a result, where I grew up on the end of Long Island, it's the east end. It is all still very agricultural. I grew up on a potato farm. And most people don't even think of Long Island. They think of Long Island as some sort of suburb of New York City, right, which parts of it are. 
that are close to the city, but the further out you get, the more rural it becomes. Um, part of the reason it is still rural, and most of those potato farms have been converted to vineyards now, and it's become this little boutique um, wine industry out there, is the water supply can't handle um, overpopulation out there. And so, and, and it's not like at the eastern end of Long Island, you can't draw water from Connecticut across the sound. And New York City's certainly not gonna ship their water out. I mean, they've gotta you know, service seven or eight million people. So um, it's a limited water supply and it, the water supply suffers from saltwater intrusion in the water table. So that makes it even more challenging. <clears throat> Um, so that was sort of my first exposure to it. And I really then, um, learned more about it between a trip to Vietnam, uh, of course, serving in Iraq, which is a very water constrained environment where we were looking at, um, you know, how the Turkey controls the dam that, yep. the, you know, Euphrates river <coughs> flow down and, um, Anyway, you've got territorial rights, which is where most of my interests have come from, from my time in foreign policy, is basically how the geopolitics of how countries bargain and negotiate over water, right? Which is very much the case in Vietnam as well. Um, so it was fascinating when, when uh, my wife and I made the decision to move out here um, to California with, from DC, uh, to learn that the Pacific Council had a fellow, and I still need to introduce you to her, I, I need to uh, run down her name, um, who was specifically focused on water scarcity and the challenge of managing water. Uh, and of course, California is a great um, test case, right? But there are, yes. there are much more challenging areas around the world, as, as you know. Um, but California is pretty challenging, you know, and it's got a lot of peculiarities. And um, so it's a, a fascinating area to explore. Um, and we're just, we're blessed here in the United States, right, for the time being. Um, but it's, it's only a matter of time, given the, the population growth in the world, given uh, climate change and some of the other factors that are going to impact our ability to, to have potable water. Well, yeah, you, it was so interesting. You mentioned uh, saltwater intrusion in the water table. That's the exact problem that we have encountered in, in uh, El Salvador. Mm. And so what happens uh, is that it's exactly as you described, people, places that are close to the coast, um, many times their water tables and aquifers get, get saltwater intrusion. So, so you still have water with really high salinity that's really terrible for your health, especially your... Yeah. your long-term health and yeah. uh, all of the implications for that what what do you know um what do you know and uh, about what what ocean water does <laughs> so i i learned about it you know from uh bob ramsey um just basically his participation <laughs> in mission trip to el salvador and i'm sure he's probably been on a few um but just uh being able to tap into ocean water in a sustainable way to bring potable water to um, local 
populations um, where you're servicing. And so it's a, you know, it's a concept that needs to be done. And uh, it does not surprise me that it's being filled in the nonprofit sector. Quite frankly, um, many of the governments where you operate uh, don't have the capacity maybe to, to manage their resources effectively to begin with. And so you're definitely filling a, a huge niche with uh, the mission work that you're doing. Well, thank you. We were, we're just getting started. We've just been at this for a year. And, and one of the things that I have found really useful is to have just interesting conversations with, with, with wonderful people. And my, my belief is, you know, people sort of wonder, you know, how does change happen? And it's really just, it's really just one conversation at a time, one mm -hmm. friendship at a time, one relationship at a time, and uh, one experience at a time. So you're right. You, you, you have traveled enough to understand that a lot of the governments of the world, people, people aren't aware of this. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important for us to talk and just have these conversations is because a lot of people don't understand that a lot of the governments of the world don't even have infrastructure for all of their citizens. So when we talk about water being a billion person problem and you hear that conversation being had, you know, from uh, people that two people that live in California and they start to talk about water, there's sort of a little bit of a disconnect there. But really when you start to travel and you start to study and you start to learn about what is the, what is the infrastructure that exists in the world. And there are just so many, what I call just kind of like pockets of the forgotten. And, and they're really smaller groups of people. And so the cities of the world for the most part have, have water. So do most of the suburbs. Uh, and, and some of the people that have been left out of that equation are there, there are, there are hundreds and thousands of small pockets of people that exist along the coastlines of the world. Mm -hmm. There are 108 countries that have coastline that bought that, a border the ocean uh, in the world. And in those 108 countries, there are pockets of 20 families and 30 families and 60 families and 100 families. Um, the, the, the population sizes are just small enough to stay off of the radar. And so, and yeah, so what we do is we, we really want to lean into that space and, and have conversations and be a voice to, uh, to, 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 help, to help people uh, in that context. So it's been, it's been really fun um, having these conversations with people like you. I'm really honored that you would take the time to do this. For people who have paid attention to, to the beginning of this and really understand your background and really understand the work that you've done, I just want to say a sincere thank you. And I'm really, really honored that you give this 25 minutes of your time today, brother. I really uh, Thanks, Brian. It's my pleasure. And, you know, like I said, you're doing great work. It's important work. And uh, I'm glad I could help in some small way. Thank you so much, Steve. We'll get that coffee talk set up. And uh, awesome. we, look, we look forward to, to, uh, to going to Ray's soon and getting some food. <laughs> Sounds great, brother. Yeah, thank you, have man. Have, have a wonderful day, Steve. Thank you. You too. Bye. Okay.